Al Jazeera Podcasts. Israel is driving ahead with its genocidal war on Gaza. Yet while it's massacring Palestinians, it's failing to destroy Hamas. As the world watches, Israel is carrying out its slaughter with Western-supplied weapons without restraint. So are we at a pivotal point in history for both the Palestinian people and Israel? I'm Neve Barker, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Okay, well, let's bring in our guests. In London, Ontario, Canada, Michael Link, who's a former United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territory. Here in Doha, Tamar Kamut, who is a professor of public policy, specialising in Gaza at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. And in Philadelphia, Raz Segal, who's an associate professor at Stockton University and a specialist in Holocaust and genocide studies. A very warm welcome to all three of you. We have an awful lot to cover on this program, uh, but we are, of course, looking at the impact of this conflict and whether or not it will change history going forward. So more than three months of war, well over 25,000 people dead, 60,000 injured, 85% of Gazans displaced, and almost 400,000 people in Gaza already in famine or on the brink of famine. Michael Link, if I can turn to you, this is like a war in modern times, like none we've seen before. How would you describe it? It certainly is a war replenished with uh, with war crimes. We can talk about October 7th. We can talk as well about these way, the way in which Israel has conducted this war for the past three and a half months, uh, uh, the use of starvation, the denial of the basic necessities of life going to a population, the use of 2,000-pound uh, bombs dropped repeatedly in heavily... Uh, uh, civilian areas um, and uh, the way in which um, uh, civilian infrastructure, churches, mosques, schools, universities, hospitals have all been damaged or, or destroyed. All of these very clear war crimes. And we may find out tomorrow whether or not the, the International Court of Justice thinks this may be a plausible case for, for genocide and therefore the ordering of provisional measures uh, against Israel. We will, of course, uh, get on to developments of the International Court of Justice. But, uh, Raz, uh, turning to you, this conflict appears to have upended many, many things around the world, including Israel's international credibility and, indeed, its army that has always been a pillar of Israeli security and the state. Do you think we can ever go back to the way things were before this conflict? Well, no, uh, of course not. I don't think that there's uh, uh, going back to uh, before uh, 7th uh, of October. I think that uh, the ICJ case is already uh, unprecedented and already a, a major change because Israel uh, is actually standing a trial on the uh, charge uh, of genocide, which no one would have uh, imagined that uh, just uh, several months ago. So I think that this is a, a watershed uh, uh, moment with far-reaching implications uh, uh, around uh, the world. And it's also very likely that we will see a decision tomorrow that it is very plausible that Israel is indeed engaging in genocidal acts in its attack on Gaza. Uh, so again, no, I think that uh, um, this is a watershed uh, moment that we're witnessing right now. And Tama, do you share those thoughts? Uh, yes, of course, Neve. I mean, um, um, as a Palestinian, um, uh, this is significant for us as Palestinians, because um, Israel was established on uh, an occupied land on, in, in 1948. And, um, of course, this—I mean, the foundation of this occupation was uh, what happened in Europe, the Holocaust, which is a horrendous crime. 
So now it's uh, for the first time in history we see the grand uh, sons and daughters of the Holocaust survivors standing in front of uh, social uh, international justice. They have to answer for 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 what they're doing for the crime of all crimes, which is the genocide in Gaza. So it's extremely significant what's happening, and I think it brings hope hope for accountability for uh, for justice. And, and most importantly, hopes for ending this occupation once and for all. I mean, if, if, if Israel eventually starts feeling the pressure, uh, understanding the repercussions of what it has what it has done in Gaza and in Palestine uh, for keeping its occupation and for what's happening in Gaza now, I think this could 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 bring us closer to justice and closer to ending this conflict. If there is an international will, a real international will to put pressure on Israel and to find ways to end this occupation once and forever. Uh, just to remind our viewers, we are recording this before the International Court of Justice makes any kind of ruling uh, over in The Hague. But um, picking up on something you've mentioned there, Tamara, and I want to put this to Michael if I can, the conflict seems to have exposed massive international contradictions in the world order with Western powers, especially the UK, the United States uh, and Germany, continuing to shield Israel from international criticism. What does this moment mean for the post-Second World, World War order, uh, an order that, of course, has been dominated by European and Western powers for so long? You're right with respect to this. In, in many ways, uh, this, this war, this assault on, on Gaza has, has exposed the fracture points between the global north and the, and the global south. We see overwhelming opinion in the global south uh, in favor of ceasefires as early as uh, late October. And this was expressed in the UN General Assembly resolution, which voted overwhelmingly. I think the vote was 153 to 10 uh, in favor of, a, of an immediate ceasefire um, and overwhelmingly supported by by countries from the global south, with the global north either abstaining or voting uh, or voting against, um, and we see these fracture points in the way in which we talk about international law. After all, it was the global north, uh, Europe, and North America uh, who put into place our modern system of, uh, of international law, and yet when it comes to uh, vital um, issues like uh, Israel and uh, and Palestine. We see international law being disregarded. It's a concept of international law for thee, but not for me. We can think of the many ways in which the United Nations resolutions have uh, said that Israel um, is violating international law through its annexation, through its, uh, its settlements, through its refusal to recognize this as an occupation, through the refusal of Palestinian self-determination. All of these are well embedded in international law, developed in, in significant part by the global north, yet it refuses to apply this. And the reason why we have such a horrible war going on in Gaza now is the lack of accountability over the last 75 years and the last 56 years with respect to Israel's conduct towards the Palestinians. Right, Raz, that's an interesting point raised by Michael, that there is this uh, fissure, there is this divide between the global north and the global south, between the traditional centre of global power and many developing economies in the global south. It does beg the question now, where is the moral axis globally? Well, I think if to uh, if to just uh, follow on what uh, Michael said and to emphasize that the 
the when the international legal system reemerged after World War II, genocide was its key innovation, right? The crime of genocide, and was really based in many ways on the idea that the Holocaust, the Nazi assault against uh, Jews, was was unique. So the uh, the idea that the Holocaust was unique was very foundational in the emergence of the crime of genocide, and therefore Israel, when it emerged as the state, the Jewish state, the state of the Holocaust survivors, it also actually became unique in this international framework. So impunity for Israel was really baked into the international legal system from the very uh, beginning, and it was based actually paradoxically on the crime of, of genocide. So the crime of genocide really served to ensure this impunity, to shield Israel uh, from international law, to, to create this absurd situation where we see decades, as Michael said, of violations, gross violations of international law uh, uh, by Israel. Now, this is why this is such a watershed moment, because Israel genocide uh, on Gaza is so clear, it's so in our face, because genocidal intent is, right. you know, we've all heard and seen it so clearly, right? So now, genocide actually serves, right, to hold, right. as we all hope to see, hold Israel accountable. And this is why this is such a watershed moment, because the meaning of the concept of genocide, right, and the international legal system is changing. And as I said, this has far-reaching implications beyond the case of Israel and Palestine, beyond Gaza, for marginalized, for persecuted groups around the world, because this is an opportunity, really, to change in a fundamental way the international legal system and how it functions primarily for marginalized and persecuted groups in the global south. So, Raz, if I understand you correctly, and let me put this to, to, to Tamar, it appears as if the entire system has already been, for a very long time, skewed towards Israel. Is that the reason, Tama, why it is now very difficult indeed to find any consensus, any kind of strategy for permanently ending this conflict, of really coming up with something concrete when it comes to the so-called day after? Uh, you know, Neve, I mean, I mean, there has been, like, so many international resolutions in favor of Palestine, uh, in favor of, of Palestinians having independence, having a right to have their own state, live long by side by, with Israel. But the thing is, with enforcement, I mean, the, the, I, mean, I mean, you have all these resolutions. I mean, I cannot recall all of them now. But the U.S. has always uh, more or less protected Israel, uh, uh, enabled it to continue with the occupation. The U.S. and certain Western allies, of course. And, and, and that's the problem. The problem is Israel is treated as a, as, a, as, a, as a state above international law. And now it's becoming a pariah state. And it also it's becoming more or less a liability even for its own uh, allies and partners in, in, in the West. Because, I mean, I mean there's m many of these powerful Western countries, they're the ones who were involved in establishing the international law as we see it now, especially after the Second World War. And now they cannot keep the hypocrisy and the complicity to treat Israel differently than, than any other countries. So, and, and, and so that's the problem. The problem is enough with uh, offering Israel an umbrella of protection. And it has to be, if, if it's a member of the international community, it has obligations and it has to tre be treated same like uh, any other country. And when this happens, then we have an international law that each country will abide with and it can be respected. Mm. Now, when it comes to the future of Gaza and the day after, what we see so far is, sadly, again, uh, we see tendencies to repeat uh, what Oslo brought, which means uh, imposing a deal on the Palestinians that they have no say in it, 
uh, excluding a key party, a key political party like Hamas, from any future negotiations. And, 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 uh, and, and that's the problem. I mean, one, one key issue with Oslo that it was not built on Palestinian consensus. You had the PLO at the time, led by Fatah, and they, it was dragged to uh, sign a peace agreement with Israel, with Israel that brought nothing because of Israel's refusal to abide with the Oslo uh, peace accords. Now, right. Hamas is an outcome of this failed process, of, of this 25 years of failed experiences, failed peace process, which was right. peaceful by large. And now the, what's happening is the tendency, again, to impose a solution to the Palestinians that neglects a key Palestinian party like Hamas. So right. it's, it's going to end uh, miserably again. And OK, so, Tamar, if I understand you correctly, there is a danger that could be repeated by potentially marginalizing certain Palestinian voices that will mean this entire proposal, the possibility of Palestinian statehood, a two-state solution could potentially backfire. Michael, let me turn to you, because in the past two weeks, we've had the US, the UK, the EU, all reiterate the need and the urgency for a two-state solution. It's been, of course, the United Nations position for so long now. What has emboldened Benjamin Netanyahu to now say flatly no? Well, I think the main reason is, is that he's never learned or never known any cost for the occupation. Um, <clears throat> he can continue building settlements, uh, a war crime under international law, without any consequences. He can maintain uh, to manage the occupation and not engage in any kind of uh, peace talks, real or not, with the Palestinians and not face any uh, uh, any cost uh, for doing this. Um, he has a strong diplomatic shield of the United, of the United States uh, protecting him. So. He's able to continue um, uh, with the settlements, which makes a two-state uh, solution impossible. Keep in mind this, you know, when the international community, particularly the global north, keeps on talking about a two-state solution, this becomes a sweet spot for Israel and its far-right government because it holds out the possibility that there is, we, can, we can devise a workable two-state solution, all the while while Israel faces no consequences and continuing to put more settlers and build more settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, which make that uh, impossible. And that's the same thing true for the United States. It talks about a two-state solution, but does nothing to stop Israel from making that uh, possibility a, uh, a reality. So I'm afraid, you know, if, if Israel wound up suffering a political nervous breakdown in 2005, when it removed 8,000 settlers from, uh, from Gaza, what are we to expect when Israel has somewhere between 725 and 740,000 settlers in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, which the international community says is uh, the designated Palestinian state? Um, how are we to believe that a two-state solution now is even possible? Uh, Raz, clearly an awful lot of um, frustration coming from the UK, the US, Germany and others and the EU um, earlier on uh, this week about Benjamin Netanyahu's unbending position when it comes to two-state solution. Do you think in the long run it's going to hurt Israel? I mean, it's, uh, uh, I think that Israel, of course, uh, is, uh, will find itself now in a very difficult uh, situation. Again, as I said, I think it's likely that we'll see an uh, ICJ uh, uh, decision uh, tomorrow that it's plausible that Israel is conducting genocidal acts that will uh, uh, put uh, Israel in uh, severe isolation uh, internationally. Also, 
uh, among its allies, primarily uh, uh, the U.S. There's also an ongoing uh, court case that will actually will have a session of it on Friday, right after the ICJ decision in California, the case that the Center for Constitutional Rights has brought against uh, President Biden and against uh, uh, Lincoln and Austin on complicity with genocide and failure to pre prevent genocide by the U.S. continuing to support Israel militarily and diplomatically. Um, um, with an ICJ ruling, uh, Israel's allies—and not only Israel's allies, but, you know, think about any university, any company, any state around the world will now need to continue or not continue its engagement with Israel with the knowledge that it's very plausible that Israel has and is conducting genocidal uh, acts mm -hmm. in Gaza. So, yes, I think that uh, Israel is in a very difficult uh, uh, situation, um, and which which adds, of course, to the fact that this is a, a watershed uh, moment, uh, um, and um, with, as I right. said, far-reaching well, implications. It's very, it's very just, difficult just, to know. Just to, Raza, well, just, just to recap on, on where we are with this case, because the case was brought, of course, just to remind our viewers, by South Africa and accusing Israel of committing genocide. And to be clear, that decision on genocide could be. Uh, years away, if it comes at all, but at this stage, the court will issue an injunction known as provisional measures in order to prevent Israel from continuing its military campaign. The point being, on the grounds that a genocide may be plausible. T Tamar, is, do you think there's something the United States knows about Israel's conduct in this conflict that the world doesn't? Uh, Neve, I mean, sadly, the United States is 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 uh, is a partner to Israel in this in this war. I mean, it's uh, it's supplying Israel with intelligence, with uh, with weapons, with logistics. I mean, name it. I mean, uh, it it also contained Israel from day one. You know, uh, to ensure that this uh, conflict won't turn into a regional conflict. So the Americas and the Israelis are in bed together. Sadly, I mean. So yes, of course. I mean, the U.S knows a lot about it and, uh, and I, but I hope I hope at least um, I, I mean the Americans also have realized that things are getting out of control and they're becoming so ugly they sense the international uh, uh, anger of, of the continuation of this genocidal war on Gaza and and uh, which being aired on TVs I mean I mean so so I think the I hope that they're at a point where they realize that too much protection for Israel will, be, will bring more liabilities to them as well. So, and they're able at least to use this case to, uh, to, to put pressure on Israel to end this war and to, to resort to peace. I mean, that's the only way to go. This conflict cannot be ended, cannot end by violence or by continuation of occupation. Okay. It's, it's done. It's over. These times are over. Thomas, so that is your hope going forward, that this has to be a watershed moment going forward. Let me turn uh, in the last couple of minutes of the show to Michael and then Raz to also share what you think, from what you've seen in recent days and recent weeks, might be something that we can pin hope on going forward. Let's start with you, Michael. I wish I could pin hope with respect to this. You know, history is full of occasions when there is a turning point and somehow history didn't turn. I thought that history had reached a turning point in 1993 with the Oslo Accords. I thought history had reached a turning point after the Second Intifada in 2002 and 2003 with the thought that maybe there was a roadmap to, uh, uh, to peace and, uh, and a two-state solution. And right. I'm as, as awful as the situation is now with over 25,000 Palestinians 
killed uh, and, and Gaza flattened, I'm not convinced that history will wind up turning uh, on this point either. Um, we have to think of base our hopes on on what's realistic on the ground right. rather than rather than a pure hope on this. Thank you, Michael. And to you, Raz, your hopes. Yeah, I think that the situation in Gaza is catastrophic, and we need to keep this front and center. Uh, I, I, I don't think that you know. I don't think that it's uh, we can really speak maybe in the language of hope, as Michael said, but I think that we are uh, hearing more of Palestinian perspectives. We the streets around the world. There is you know, in the U.S. has experienced the largest and longest protest movements in its history since the Vietnam War, and across the world there are protests. This is really what led uh, South. Africa to file its uh, case in the ICJ. Uh, so this is actually a moment, I think, that there we're seeing more of the truth of what's going on in Israel and Palestine, not only since 7th of October, but the broader uh, uh, context of Israeli settler colonialism and mass violence and military occupation and siege and so on. And the truth is, I think, very, very important if we think about moving forward, if we think about justice, if we think about a possible political uh, uh, settlement. So, again, I don't think that we can talk about hope when we see the levels of catastrophe and destruction and killing uh, in Gaza, which should be really front and center for us. But I think that there is, I think there is potential in this watershed uh, uh, moment for truth, for justice. We see it from below, from the street, and that's very uh, uh, encouraging. And as I said, I think there's also far-reaching implications for the international legal system here for millions of people around the world who are under attack, who are persecuted. Uh, um, and this this could now uh, signal a change. So there is hope, although we have clearly a very, very long way to go. Thank you, all three of you, for your contributions. Michael Link, Raz Segal, Tamar Khamut. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Uma Kulsum Sharif, Veronica Pedrosa and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Mohamed Osman. The programme was edited by Ahmed Edfaga, Lynn Nguyen, David Enders and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, Hulimia Sparrow's story, Almost Real, imagines a future where Canadian Indigenous people have created an AI trained on their traditional knowledge. She represents over 200 nations and over 30 language groups in the Confederation of Unceded Sovereign Indigenous Nations. This powerful being is stolen and forced to perform in Canada land. What now? A theme park. But instead of Mickey Mouse, it's Mr. Moose and Mounties. But a group of undercover operatives hatch a plan to get her back. We're going to Canada to save Almost Real. Will you help us? Almost Real on Necessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.